welcome to the Sporting History podcast from the British Society of Sports History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. I'm continuing uh, the summer series of podcasts uh, with researchers who have given papers at the Sport and Leisure History Seminar at the IHR and today I'm here with Matt Taylor. Hi Matt. Hi. Matt Taylor, uh, Professor Matt Taylor I should say, is uh, Professor of History at De Montfort University and he's one of the nation's leading sports historians. Uh, most people will know him for his standard work on the history of, Brit of football in Britain, the, called the Association Game, the history of British football. And today we're both at the BSSH conference in Liverpool, uh, where I've just attended a paper that Matt gave on sport and the wartime Sunday in Britain. Can you tell us some more about the debates around playing sport on Sunday during World War II, Matt? Yeah, so, so I mean the debates um, very much continued the um, debates over Sunday sport which came from the, uh, the First World War and the interwar period. Um, so debates between those who were Sabbatarians linked to the church who were trying to, um, trying to, to, to um, protect um, uh, the Sunday free from any entertainment and those who felt that actually, you know, in a, in a, in a modern society, then um, particularly people who worked uh, uh, other times of the week, you know, should have the opportunity to play on Sundays. Uh, I think my take on it in terms of the war was, was that there were, there were other issues involved as well. There were many um, workers who were working much longer hours. There were um, people in the forces who simply didn't have the time to play, particularly on Saturday and other times of the week. And so there the, the really became a flashpoint. The Sunday, for many people, was the only possible time. And so governing bodies, but particularly I focused on um, kind of local councils, uh, they all debated this issue. Um, there was pressure to, to um, uh, allow um, parks, for instance, to be open, swimming pools and things like this. And it became a big issue and kind of, kind of, kind of a local one, but also one which got, uh, had a national focus because mm. it was discussed everywhere. Yeah, I think one of the things that you really brought out was the way in which uh, this issue broke down on class lines because of the... Yeah the uh, difference between municipal grounds and privately owned grounds. Can you tell us some more about that? Yeah, that's, I think it was in many ways, it was, it was cast by some as, as, an, as an issue about class. Um, partly to do with just the issues of, of space, uh, the difference between you know, public grounds, parks, swimming pools, etc., etc., um, and, and private clubs, private clubs which were generally, you know, tennis clubs and golf clubs and others which were kind of linked, linked to the middle class and they ten tended to continue I mean golf golf and tennis to a certain degree ha had, a, had a fair you know history of uh, local clubs ha uh, having Sunday play um, and that simply continued in the war so it was the um, it was the issue of visibility there were those who who, who felt it was unfair um, uh, that, that people uh, could continue to to play their games um, if they were members of clubs uh, hidden away generally from from the public gaze, um, but where, whereas the parks, you know, were closed because well, because it was a very much a symbol of of um, the the municipality's um, devotion to the war effort, and that's how it was seen by many, you know. So they, they had to get over that obstacle. Um, it was it was it was in many ways, um, you know, connections to uh, the war the war effort and how people saw the war and what they felt primarily they were fighting for. Yeah. And you also brought in some gender as well there, didn't you? Like comments yeah. about uh, in favour or against uh, playing on Sunday. Can you bring out sort of the gender issues that you, you mentioned? Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, there were, I, I think women, w women 
uh, we're, we're seen as obviously extremely important in all sorts of uh, uh, ways in the in the in the Second World War. Um, <coughs> there were uh, women's sport was kind of a, 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 a big issue, and there was, in many respects, more. Um, uh, sport among, amongst women that took place, both those that were in the services and those who who were war workers. I mean, many women went away to um, to work in in munitions and other kind of kind of war factories. And so, <coughs> the issue of um, of of, of uh, what women's view about this might be uh, w was very significant. And so, some actually kind of tended to be men kind of reported on what they thought women's views would be mm. and that, that actually they would they would um, not want you know they would want to maintain a, a family Sunday which of course some had church at the center of it but was kind of linked to family life um, uh, but uh, but others um, very interestingly kind of a lot of a lot of um, uh, women's groups like the women's um, voluntary service but also um, kind of uh, 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 women's clubs linked to the military or to um, works groups um, actually were, there, were the most active in trying to force um, councils to change their rules on Sunday, mm. uh, on Sunday opening of, of, of parks and sports grounds. So actually, you know, it's a very complicated picture. Yeah, and, and obviously the, the issue around playing sport on Sunday is very, very much connected with Britain at that time being a more Christian society than it is nowadays. Um, but that there are different strands of Christianity in, in British society, aren't there? So, so does that also affect mm. the picture or does that affect the debate? Yeah, I mean, what, generally what seems to have occurred is that in, in, uh, in certain parts of the country, in, in, in certain parts of the country where Methodism was much more, um, a much more significant part of religious culture, and that there tended to be more opposition to, um, um, to, to changing the rules on, on Sunday play. Um, whereas um, you know, in, in uh, Anglican areas, particularly I suppose in in parts of the south of England, uh, there tended to be more liberalism about those sorts of things, um, and so that was generally the case. But there were all sorts of complications to that because there were specific there were specific local circumstances which perhaps were were to do with the, the particular what that particular area was. Uh, what industry it was linked to, and uh, and um, and to what extent it, it suffered from bombing, various things like this. So, I mean, I think one of the things I want, you know, trying to say in this, um, and, and as well as my kind of general work on, on this topic, is is that that uh, local variations are so important. To mm. talk about a national a national picture is becomes extremely hard because it begins to break down, yeah. and you see the nuances and the complications of of, of making a very broad statement about what was happening in relation to sport uh, on Sundays or, or sport more generally in the Second World War. Yeah, and this, this paper was based on a chapter from a book that you have coming out soon, I believe, yeah. um, called Sport in the Home Front. You're looking at uh, the military on the home front, or are you looking at uh, civilians playing sport? It's civilians playing yeah, sport, especially. It's, it's, pri it's primarily a, a book about um, civ the civilian involvement of sport, although um, military sport is an important aspect of that because um, many, many, most people in, who are in the army, who are in the services, spent most of their time at home, actually, yeah. and then they, they were getting ready to fight or coming back to fight. Um, and so those are all important things. Um, so, so, so that becomes important, and it, and it really is, it really is a book which looks at um, the uh, the context of the, the the Second World War in terms of the history of sport, um, which has tended to be ignored, 
um, by historians because they, they don't think there's a particular, you know, a, a great deal happened in terms of the Second World War. And also it's interesting the fact that, you know, much of the, the records of international matches and things like that uh, j j just aren't included in general record books. So the Second World War, you know, is a kind of, is a kind of um, uh, a, a vacuum in terms of sports it, history. So it's seen by the case. sportsmen themselves as, as different, as somehow different from their... I think I think so. Many autobiographies kind of look back on the period. Yeah, many autobiographies, and the autobiographies unfortunately are generally by men, yeah. um, but there are some exceptions. They tend to look back on the on the Second World War period as a kind of missed opportunity, in terms of their their careers and and their kind of records. But actually, it was more. It, it wasn't exactly that necessarily, because it led to the the, the development of lots of careers. So so I think those sorts though, that that's really important as well. Um, but I think the book is uh, attempting also to um, contribute significantly to the to the history of the home front mm. because it's it, it suggesting that you know this is this is an element of popular cultural life and everyday life in many ways which was equally as important as things like cinema mm. music but it's tended to be ignored by historians of the of the home front very very few mention it at all and if they do it's maybe you know a paragraph here and there so i think it is it is one of these cases as lots of us kind of work on the history of sport it is filling a gap but i think it's also contributing to broader debates about how the the british saw themselves in the second world war so it's as much about representation uh, in in many ways as it is about kind of what actually happened because mm. that element of the story is relatively straightforward yeah yeah and you're you're working at the international center for sport history and culture That's at right, De Montfort. Yeah. Um, what, what does this, for, for those who don't know uh, De Montfort, I mean, what does the centre do? What's, what, uh... Well, well we're, I mean, the centre was established back in 1996 now, but it's, it, it, it's um, there's a number of us who, who, who work there. Uh, we're historians, we're, we're, we're uh, uh, in the, uh, generally we're based in the history uh, department. One of my colleagues, Heather Dichter, um, is in, in sport management, but, um, uh, we're part of the kind of the kind of history team in terms of teaching, but also in terms of research. We run a couple of uh, of, of masters courses. One which probably more uh, relevance people working on sports history is is an MA on on, on sports history and culture. And we um, have quite a number now of um, PhD students. Uh, I think around uh, 15, 16 at the moment. Um, and so we supervise uh, at masters level. Um, at PhD level, doctoral level, and we also contribute to um, the undergraduate history course, mm. both in terms of uh, in terms of our, con our contribution as as kind of social and cultural historians more generally, and specific um, courses on the history of sport yeah. as well. I'm glad you mentioned PhD students because uh, you're the first real senior academic that I've had the opportunity <laughs> to to interview for this uh, for this podcast. I think. Um, and you've had lots of PhD students over the years. Has your approach to supervision changed since you, you know, first became a, an academic? Yeah, I, um, it's it's an interesting one. I th I think it has as you gain more experience, mm. it develops. I mean, like all these sorts of things. There isn't, although they they probably do now exist. I was going to say there was there aren't manuals on how to be a PhD supervisor. I'm sh I'm absolutely sure there are. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't read them though. You tend to you tend to. Um, it, it tends to build up from both the, your own experience, but also your experience of, of being supervised as well. So I think, you know, I had, I had a, uh, uh, an experience where I had um, uh, two, two supervisors who were both excellent in, the, in their 
in their in different ways, but they approach things very differently. Mm. Um, and so, uh, and both of them suited me in various ways. Kind of one particularly kind of kind of I'd come out of a, a supervisory meeting with with just loads of ideas and lots of lo, lo, lots of things that I could I could move on to but perhaps the actual detail of things he wasn't as good at the other supervisor was absolutely superb at that at the at the um, at the precision in writing and how to craft and how to do these so ideas on one hand and the kind of you know how to structure and how to write on the other yeah the trade um, I suppose you'd call that uh, yeah. absolutely yeah yeah and so <coughs> and so I guess what I try to do to a certain degree is, is, is combine both those sorts of things. I'm not sure I was, I'm as good at either of them as, as, as my two supervisors were. Uh, it's also, I think, to, to, to recognise that, 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 that students are different. They come to you from different, different backgrounds, different experiences, um, sometimes with a lot more confidence about both their subject and, and, what, and how they, they're going to undertake the, the PhD. But we have other other students who have just a much vaguer idea uh, about how they're going to do it, and so it's helping them, helping them to understand or, or to give them guidance about how how you um, how, how you begin the process of putting together uh, effectively what is a proposal, which you do in the first first year or so, to convince other both your supervisors but other. Um, members of the, the the departmental team that this is doable this is you know worth doing that that you can yeah, but both you as a student can manage to do it but but also the topic is that is one that's worthy and 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 you know worth spending three between three and six years on yeah, yeah. um so so i think it's, it's just and also i think uh, um, i don't want to talk too much about the bureaucracy of universities but I think they have become more bureaucratic, and so it's just really providing that support and guidance through 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 the process and saying, okay, worry about this that you email that you've got. Don't worry about this one. You know, we really need to focus on this now, um, and do it, uh, uh, and and we'll deal with that sort of issue later. So, uh, so it's interesting. I also find you get a lot of value. We work in, in supervisory teams with with a range of supervisors yeah. and um, you, you learn a lot all the time from, 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 your, from your students but also from other techniques, other um, supervisory techniques, some who might be a little bit firmer about you know, certain deadlines are, are extremely important, you get that to me at a particular time and others who kind of allow the student in a way to find their way through. I don't think there's a, there's a right way or a wrong way. Yeah. Um, so I, in some ways I kind of, you know, I think I, I, I have my own uh, ways of doing things but I also it depends on the student themselves and how they how I get a sense that they like to be supervised or they like to be pushed or not and you know everyone's different no two uh, students are the same are they absolutely not no. No, no. <laughs> and what about you how you, you talked about your own experience of uh, doing PhD earlier on how did you come to do a PhD what was your what were your first steps into the profession okay so so I was a, I was a, an undergraduate at York York University um, history and politics. I, I I sometimes forget that I did politics as well, but but actually the politics side of it was quite historical anyway. So I yeah. almost regarded myself as being just a history student. Um, and during during that degree, I, I I did a couple of modules which which um, kind of opened my eyes to the possibility of this thing called I suppose at the time I'd called it leisure history rather than sports history. Um, one was in, in the politics side of it, um, uh, an historian called, called Christopher Hill, not the 
famous Marxist oh, okay. historian, yeah. <laughs> but, but, a, but a political scientist who, uh, who worked on, on the politics of the Olympics, um, and one with, with, with Professor James Wolvin, who um, is very well known as a historian of slavery, but he also wrote on the history of leisure and, and, and wrote a book about football, the first kind of academic mm, study yeah, of football. Yeah. And so it was, a, it, it, it was a, a module about, you know, leisure and popular culture in the Victorian period, up to, up to, up to the Edwardian period, I think. And um, yeah, I, I began to read books by Richard Holt and uh, Ray Van Plew and uh, many others. And um, I became aware of this thing called, called sports history. Um, initially was going to do a, uh, following up for my degree, uh, a master's at, at Warwick. Um, but actually th this was the same time as uh, the, 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 kind of s the beginnings of the centre were being established at De Montfort. And so I was very lucky uh, the fact that Ray Van Blue, who set up the centre, um, contacted my, one of my, my, my personal tutor um, at York, um, a guy called Ted Royal, and said, do you happen to know anyone who might be interested in doing a PhD on something to do with sport, history of sport? Yeah. And he gave them my name. So I, it, does, it can't happen nowadays, but I was um, kind of a rare a rare academic who has, has not got a master's degree. Right. So, okay, I went, so you went straight to I PhD. went straight to a PhD, yeah. yeah. Which, which um, I think probably uh, worked against me a little bit yeah. later on in some respects. Um, so I think it's absolutely right that, you know, uh, people should do masters and, and then do PhDs, but it was, it, it was possible at the time. And yeah. so I, it, it was a possibility to be funded as well. So I, I did jump at it. If you get funding <laughs> or if you have the chance, just take it. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, so, so you've got the, uh, the Sport on the Home Front book coming out. When nice is that coming out? So that's, that should be about April 2020. Right, so uh, people can order it around Christmas time. I, yeah, I would think so. <laughs> think so yeah. And what about after, after the big book? Uh, what's coming next? Have you got any, anything cooking? Yeah, a few, a few, yeah, I've got a lot cooking. <laughs> <laughs> a, few, um, uh, a, f a few kind of general ideas and one specific one I, I'm, I'm going to do a book hopefully fairly soon after um, the Sport in the Home Front one, which I've been thinking about for quite a long while. I, um, I haven't quite got a contract for it yet, but I, I will do soon after that's finished, which is, um, which is basically a kind of a, a, a study of um, the transna kind of transnational connections. It's kind of a, a tr the attempt is to kind of write a, a transnational history of sport from around about the 1860s to, to the post-war period. Wow. Um, which, um, which, you know, you, you, which uses case studies as an example, so kind of which focuses on, on the movement of people, which focuses on the kind of movement of, of, of uh, games and uh, focuses on uh, kind of international tournaments, so the Olympics and the World Cup and things like that. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's likely to happen. Um, and that sounds quite a lot already. <laughs> it does sound a lot. It yeah. does sound like a lot. Although I've got to say, it's not, you, you said about the, my first book as being a big book. What I want, I, this is one of my, the, the kind of transnational and global history of sport is something I'm very interested in. I think lots of other people are as well. I, I intend this to kind of be my first piece on, on that. So it, it will have some original material, but it won't be primarily based right. on kind of original archival material. So it's not going to be a big book. Right. So which, which, me, which <laughs> explains why it probably, uh, I aim to complete it reasonably soon. Um, and after that, um, uh, I'm 
working on various aspects of the history of boxing with uh, Martin Johns at um, Swansea University. We've got a few articles coming out soon, so I think we've talked about a book there, so that might happen. Um, hopefully it will happen at some point. Um, and I will kind of been, as you, as you mentioned, I kind of been reasonably well known as writing on the history of football. I'm, I do want to park that for the moment, but I, I'm going to come back to it, I think, in about five or six years and try and write a big book that will be a big book on um, uh, post-war history of football in England. So a kind of f f uh, f uh, a study of football and English identity in the post-war period. Okay. As I said, we're both at the uh, the PSSH's conference here at Liverpool, uh, and we're at the end of the conference nearly. So. Thinking back over the last couple of days, are there any sort of papers that that remain in the mind for you? Oh, I, mean, I think I think it's been a really good conference. There's there's been a whole host of, of great papers. You know, ones that really make you. I think it's it, it, one of the good signs of a conference where you come away with all sorts of ideas. And you know, and this has happened this time certainly. A couple I think of immediately. I mean, they're in the, they're in the same session, so they kind of kind of connected in some in a number of ways and mm. um, Jeff Swallow talked to talked about his work um, on on kind of swimming um, and yeah, particularly I missed that one no yeah. no it, it, yeah. it, it, it was it, it was good because it, it really talked about um, uh, the the, the uh, it was it was about in some respects kind of the amateur professional divide in swimming but it used the example it's connected to issues of time in the kind of late 19th early 20th century so it uh, used the example of two swimmers an amateur and, and a professional who weren't because of the uh, amateur swimming association's rules allowed to actually compete together in the same pool yeah. but they actually uh, uh, ha effectively had a conference uh, 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 a competition um, through through the newspapers and they they, they um, uh, were involved in the competition kind of simultaneously so yeah. they had they they swam swam in different pools you know however many 180 uh, miles away from one another yeah. but it was it was constructed as as this 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 um, uh, competition between an amateur and, and a professional and you know more broadly kind of amateurism and professional professional swimming so so that was great and in the, in the same in the same um, uh, panel uh, Barbara Hawley, who does happen to be my PhD <laughs> student, but, uh, but, but uh, she's been taught by the best. <laughs> well, uh, possibly, um, and but she's um, uh, her, she's really at the beginning of her, her PhD, so it's slightly slightly different stage to, to Jeff. But she's she talked really, she made a case for the importance of um, speedway racing uh, as a historical subject you know and not just in terms of the history of sport not just the fact that it had been ignored when it was very important in terms of the number of people who, who attended but how it connected to, to the some big issues in 20th century Britain such as community gender very important in terms of speedway because they were initially speedway riders mm. and uh, there were large numbers of women who, who went to the speedway and helped organize supporters clubs and things like this. Americanization in there as well? Yeah, issues of Americanization links to, to, to technology and this very knotty notion of modernization, which I think we'll need to spend a lot of time dealing with and defining and uh, working out what she means by that. But she's certainly got a feeling that modernization is, is a factor in this as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, in that sense, that just pro that, that just provides a, gives a potential for, for these sorts of subjects, and and I think in those cases, and, and a lot of the others I've seen, it's kind of the enthusiasm, you know, um, uh, the presenters had in terms of you know conveying their work, which really does, 
you know, when people really uh, um, present with, with enthusiasm, I think it really inevitably kind of influences you and says, like, you know, and gives you an indication that actually, you know, there's all sorts of ideas here. And, you know, y you get ideas for how to present as well. Yeah. You know, I think everyone does at any stage of, a, of, of the career. That's why conf conferences, as well, in the same way as attending seminars, are so important. You always learn things and get tips. Yeah, I'll, I'll use this opportunity to flag up uh, the prize-winning uh, paper that was given at this conference. There's a prize for the best post-grad mm. paper, and that was given by Amanda Callan-Spen, who I interviewed a few weeks ago. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to see her paper, but I know that her work is really, really good. I know, I know her work, and it's excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so um, people should look out for her book, which I'm sure will come out in due course uh, once she's uh, tidied up her PhD. Thanks for talking to me today, Matt, and... Uh, if you, the listeners, uh, have some work you, you want to share, um, do uh, get in touch with us at the British Society of Sports History because we are running the Sport and Leisure History Seminar through 2019 and 2020, and we're looking for speakers. I found some speakers at the conference, but we always want more speakers wherever we can get them. So contact us at our website, which is sportsinhistory.org, or you can find us on Twitter if you search for British Society of Sports History. And uh, once again, thanks, Matt. Thanks for coming and sitting in the sunshine no problem, here in it's Liverpool. A pleasure. Uh, it was really nice to talk to you. And so it's goodbye from both of us. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>